The book was a memoir of his life, chronicling uh, kind of his whole story, but especially the part of his story where he was a treasure hunter. While the book was fairly well received, it didn't really take off until someone found in the last chapter of the book, toward the last two pages of the book, there was a poem. And in this poem, Forrest Fenn told everyone that if you follow the clues that are hidden within this poem, you will find yourself in New Mexico, in the mountains, and if you get the clues right, you will find a treasure valued at millions and millions of dollars. All of a sudden, his book sales skyrocketed, as you can imagine. And even now, if you uh, go to buy this book on Amazon, for an original copy of the book, it's $100. So then people start writing books about his book. They think they've got it figured out and they got the answer to the clues, but you got to buy their book to get the answers to his book. So all these books start selling and all these people quit their jobs in search of this treasure. Keep in mind, this was just four years ago, 2013. Right now, there are people still out there searching for Forrest Fenn's treasure. Right now. People quit their jobs, go search for treasure. Three people have died searching for this treasure. Well, some people aren't as gung-ho about quitting your job and searching for treasure. They've gone on a mission to prove that the treasure of Forrest Fenn is a hoax. It's just a big scam to sell books. So... They look at the title of the book, Thrill of the Chase, and they say, well, this guy obviously is just playing a joke on you. He just wants you to chase. Nevertheless, as we speak, there are many people who have dedicated their entire lives to finding the treasure of Forest Fen, a treasure that they, apart from the testimony of one man, do not know exists. The default position of the human heart is to seek. So I believe it's of great importance to ask this question. What is it that you seek? It's an important question to ask because if we don't ask it, we'll spend our lives either seeking things that don't matter and finding them, but they don't matter, or we'll spend our lives seeking and not finding anything. The video we watched this morning is one of my favorite videos I've ever seen. I've watched it uh, probably about 30 times now over the course of a year or two when I first saw it because I love it. It just shakes up my tendency to get used to God. The great Christian thinker Dallas Willard says this. He says, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. And what he means by that in our context is that when you're so close to something, you grow used to something. So in our context, it means that we can be so close to God, so close to the presence of the Holy Spirit, so near to the Word of God, that we become used to it. And when we become used to it, we forget about it. My prayer this morning is that we would do the opposite of that. 
So if you would turn in your Bible to Psalm 63, we will be, our scripture this morning is the entire uh, Psalm 63. And as you're turning there, if you're um, new to the Bible, uh, first off, just kind of open to the middle. You, you'll probably find yourself in the book of Psalms. And then uh, Psalm 63, here's a little background on the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a collection of 150 poems or songs. It's the hymnal or songbook of Israel. Most of them were written by King David, but not all of them. And it, this specific psalm is traditionally dated uh, around the year 1058 BC, so about 3,000 years ago. So this morning, you might be wondering, what in the world does a document from a poem from 3,000 years ago have to do in my life? I hope I can answer that uh, by the end of today. So beginning with verse 1, uh, I'll read Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will, fully, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. This morning we are seeking you. I ask that you would open our ears and open our minds to hear what you have for us today. In your name, amen. Now, I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Psalm 63. Hopefully, uh, all of you just found that haven't closed them. Sorry, Katie. I know, I saw that. That's just terrible. Should have said that before the prayer. Notes for next time. Um, you can tell I'm not a professional at this, huh? So today... Uh, if you leave it open to Psalm 63, we're going to be going through it uh, kind of start to finish and looking back at it. But today I'm going to make an audacious claim right from the get-go. And here it is. No matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what you've done or where you have been, the one true God of the Bible is what you are made to seek. And not only seek, but find. And not only find, but find and be satisfied. There are so many empty promises in the world. So many things that promise to fill a longing in our heart that only God can fill. Some of these are good things. Some of these are Super Bowl rings, uh, Stanley Cup trophies, good grades, a successful career, those are all good things, but some of these are bad things. 
such as affairs, such as violence, such as drunkenness. I'll let you make your own list of those, and the Bible gives us quite a few lists of those. But the truth is, whether these things we seek are morally good or they're morally bad, they eventually leave us wanting more. Right now is the time of year. I've grown up for 20, 23 years. I'm 23 years old. I've grown up in western New York. So now is the time of year that I've heard the same thing for as long as I can remember. I don't know. This might be our year. We might snap the 18-year playoff drought streak of the Buffalo Bills. And I'm, I'm telling you, I love the Bills. Big fan of the Bills. But I'm skeptical. <laughs> but here's the deal. A lot of us, we, we hope and hope and hope that the Bills make the playoffs this year. Or any year. Or at least are okay. Just don't come in last. You know, that's, that's just embarrassing. But, but I want the Bills to win a Super Bowl eventually. I mean, let's, why shoot for the middle when we can go to the top? I want the Bills to win a Super Bowl. But at the end of winning that Super Bowl, I know that I will not be fully satisfied because after one Super Bowl, I will want a second Super Bowl. And after a second Super Bowl, it never, ever ends. I want more Super Bowls than any other team. And then when I have the most Super Bowls, I'm going to say, well, let's set that bar high. I want another one. And it works like that with so many things in our lives. We want something and we want something and then we get something and we find it doesn't satisfy. Now if you're sitting here kind of wondering where all this is being pulled from and uh, thinking, well that's a load of baloney, I'd ask that you would stick with me for just a little bit. In the book of Genesis, we read that God has made humans in his own image. And that's a really important theme all throughout the Bible, that we are created in the image of God. Then in the book of Ecclesiastes, we read that God has set eternity within the heart of humankind. So to borrow from the analogy of this forest friend's lost treasure poem here, we are created with a longing of an abundant life or a treasure that exists if only we'd be able to find it. So today, as we look at Psalm 63, which just so happens to be a poem, my prayer is that this poem will give us clues to the treasure that our hearts seek. Just like the end of Forrest Fenn's memoir. So let's begin in verse 1. It says, You, God, are my God. As I've been studying this psalm, I have a really hard time getting past even this initial, you God are my God, the starting out. Because in our translation, it says, you God, are the first two words. But in the actual Hebrew, it just says, God. And not just God, but the Hebrew word is Elohim. Elohim, as in Genesis 1, first sentence of the Bible, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So, before the psalmist gets in to talking to God, first he addresses his audience. He realizes he's not talking to a small God. He is talking to Elohim, the creator of the heavens and the earth and all things. 
how often do we just rush into our prayers or rush into our worship without first recognizing that we are speaking to our almighty God? The second part of that verse says, earnestly I seek you. And that challenges me because it says, earnestly I seek you. Here's a really good question to ask yourself this morning. Do you earnestly seek God? Because the natural suggestion, if, if there's an earnest way to seek God, would be that the opposite may also be true, that there is a non-earnest way to seek God. You could look for something without wanting to find it. It's kind of like an example. You could probably think of some, but when you're asked, how did you not see this whole pile of laundry here? wasn't hoping I'd find a pile of laundry. So, in, in the context of God, if there is an all-powerful, perfect, and holy God who knows everything about you, that might mean that I need to change some things in my life. Things I might not want to change. So when we seek God, we seek him not earnestly, because we don't really want to find him. But if you are here today and you're in that boat, and that sounds like you, that God is the dirty laundry you don't want to see when you're looking, I want to tell you two things. If God is real, and if God is true, then his rules are the rules, and we need to obey and follow those. But if God is real, again, he knows what's best for us. So when he offers us abundant life, we are missing out if we don't follow him. C.S. Lewis puts it so beautifully in this quote. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I'm going to say that again. We are far too easily pleased. As the psalmist goes on, um, in verse 2, he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. So if I've lost you, here's a quick recap. This is halftime. So here's what we've established. We, as humans, are made to seek. And the only treasure that will ultimately fully satisfy us is God. Unfortunately, there's a problem. And the problem is our heart. Not only do we seek the wrong things, but we don't even desire to seek the right things. Right? So if we are to find this abundant life that Christ is offering to us, not only do our actions need changed, but the desires behind those actions also need to be changed. 
But the question is, how can a desire be changed? In my generation, there's, uh, even from a young age, there's this kind of mantra that, that really was just hammered home. And it was, follow your heart. Believe in yourself. Trust your gut. You know, ever heard those expressions? Kind of the moral of like every Disney movie ever. Following your heart can get you in a lot of trouble. Because if you feel like doing something, it doesn't mean you should do it. Let me give you examples. If I feel that I'm attracted to someone who is not my wife, I should not act on that. If I feel and my heart's desire 100% is that that $100 bill I found on the sidewalk should go in my pocket and not to the bank that I found it in front of, maybe that's not a good thing. Or, or maybe you can go through a whole bunch of things where following your heart not only might lead you to a destructive life, it might put you in jail, just plain and simple. That doesn't happen to Pocahontas in the, in the movies or, or the frozen princesses. But that kind of, following your heart doesn't always lead you to the right spot. So the question is, if, if we need to want what God wants us to want, how do we change our desires? I believe the answer is worship. Now, we throw that word around a lot in our Christian circles to mean all sorts of things. I think we make it an adjective, a noun, and a verb, all three of them. But for today, all I want you to think of when I say worship is intentionally adoring God. There's a great opportunity to do this every week here on Sunday mornings. But, and I don't want to minimize that because that's super important that we worship within a community of believers, but... This intentionally adoring God should be unceasing. It can be unceasing. And if we're to change the desires of our heart to what God wants us to want, it has to be. So let's return to the question, how do we change our desires through worship? And here's how you do it. You make it a point to remember that God so loved you in your broken state, with your broken actions, and your broken desires that he would give his one and only son for you. As you walk outside, you can look at the amazing world and you can go, God, you created this place. Thank you that you are powerful. Thank you that you are creative. And last but not least, here is some really good news for you this morning. If you're in that place, if you're saying, you know, I know I seek the wrong things, I know I don't want what God wants, but I want to want what God wants. Here's the good news. Jesus promises that when we seek him and earnestly seek him, we will find him. So if you're in this place, that's good news. So as the psalm continues, verses 6 through 8, he continues uh, to talk about the theme of worship. And fast forward into uh, the end of 8. It's because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. But then things take kind of a sudden turn in verse 9. They say, those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. 
They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals, but the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Now, when we read that earlier, a show of hands, did anybody feel like, wow, where did that come from? This seemed like a really kind of sweet thing, and now he's talking about jackals eating his enemies. Anybody? That was me, okay? Just a side note, if you're in a Bible study and someone asks you for a prayer request and you want to lighten the mood a little, say, I, yes, I do have a prayer request. My request is that my enemies be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. <laughs> Just see what happens. Now, it would be easy to brush over this and, and make light of it, like I just did, um, and say, well, you know, that's, that's in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we have the person of Jesus, the full revelation of God, God with skin on him. And he tells us that we need to love our enemies, we need to forgive, and we need to show mercy. And while all of that is true and should be kept in mind, I think I don't want us to miss something really important in this psalm. Because he's, he's, he has real enemies. He is really suffering. This isn't like a hypothetical enemy. People want to kill him. And what does he find his rest in? He finds his rest in something very unique to the Christian worldview, that our God is a God of justice. That this world is not as it was intended to be, and we serve a God who is going to put things back together, who is going to heal what is broken, and restore all of creation to his glory. Now, this is going to get just a little philosophical. And when I was writing this, I said, Okay, this, this like two-paragraph stretch here, I'm going to lose some people. So I'm giving you the, the caution and the challenge to stick with me for the next, I mean, give me four or five minutes on this section. And then if you stick with me there, we're home free, okay? Everybody, can you do that? Can I get a yes? Yeah, yeah, a little bit of gusto. I like it. That's good. Okay, so here we go. As Christians, we believe the world's not how it ought to be and that one day God's going to restore everything and that longing is in our human hearts across the globe that we have a longing for justice to be done. Now, if you are an atheist and if you're an atheist and you're here today, welcome. I am so glad you're here. I hope you, I hope you hear my heart behind this. I want you to think deeply about what you believe. And we love you, and we're glad you're here. We hope you're here next week, too. Um, but if you're an atheist, here's a very brief statement of what you believe. You believe that all that exists is the material universe, only material things, and that there is no God, because that would not be material, and that as humans, all we are is a collection of random chemical reactions occurring. So every thought you think, every feeling you feel is a chemical reaction that is firing through your nervous system and other people know how that works better than me so I'm not going to go too far into it but that's the simplified worldview now if all of humanity is simply a collection of random chemical reactions then you 
can make the claim that something might not be beneficial to the majority of society. It might not be advantageous to the advancement of our species. But you don't have an objective ideal such as truth or justice or right or wrong because an objective ideal would have to stand beyond those chemical reactions that we are firing all the time. So when there's evil and broken things in the world, we can call them un unbeneficial, but to call it wrong is making a truth claim that there is this objective standard that is set. So some atheists um, see that and they say, well, that's a little gloomy. So I want that, but they have this longing inside of them that something's really wrong. Not that there's just not beneficial, but that something's really wrong. So they become what's called a humanist. And a humanist believes, does not believe in God, but they believe in humans. They believe in us as a human species. Pretty much, we're all stuck on this planet for at best maybe 110 years or so. And in that time, we should try to alleviate suffering for one another and we should collaborate and work together and pretty much help each other to enjoy ourselves because we don't really have much time here and make the world a better place for the next generation. And that sounds great. That sounds like a great middle ground between the crazy, kooky, Bible-thumping Christians and the doom and gloom atheists here. And it seems like you can go right in the middle and you get the morals of Christianity, but you get the kind of freedom of atheism and then you're kind of happy medium. But I don't think it works. And I want to share a story with you from a book I read just like a month ago that I think reflects how it doesn't work. So this is a true story. And it's um, in the 1970s, Jaime Jaramillo, a wealthy businessman, was walking along the streets of Bogota in Colombia when he saw a young girl climbing down through a manhole into the sewers below. Jaramillo went home, put on a wetsuit, and followed the girl into the manhole. To his amazement, he found about 90 children living underground in filthy, rat-infested sewers. They were the youngest victims of Colombia's so-called dirty war in which government forces and paramilitary groups fought running battles across the country. In the social maelstrom, street kids found themselves at the bottom of the pile, often addicted to sniffing glue, involved in prostitution, and suffering from disease and malnutrition. The reason for their subterranean living space was paramilitary gangs were killing the children who lived on the streets above. Regarded as vermin, a gang member said of them, killing these kids is like killing lice. We call them the disposables. When a nine-year-old girl, Patricia Hilario da Silva, was gunned down in Brazil, a note was found pinned to her. I killed you, this is what the note said, I killed you because you didn't study and you had no future. She was murdered because in the eyes of her assassin, she had no value, no usefulness to society. Appalled at the situation in his home country, Jaramillo 
went on to rescue as many kids from the sewers as possible, using his money to build a home where they would receive an education and live in a loving Christian community. To date, he has changed the lives of thousands and thousands of children. Now, if you're like me, when you read that, you feel two things, and you kind of have this conflict within you. Because on one hand, you are inspired. Because this is just a wealthy businessman walking along the streets, and not only does he see a girl hop in a manhole and go, I wonder where she's going. I better check on her. I'll go home, grab my wetsuit, come back, and investigate a sewer. Not only did he do that, but when he saw that there was wrong happening, he used his wealth and leveraged his resources to do something. At the same time you feel inspired, you're probably a little horrified. Horrified that thousands of kids in the 1970s in Colombia and in uh, Brazil was uh, one of the examples, um, were living in these rat-infested sewers because if they were homeless and on the streets, they would be shot. You're probably horrified at the story of a nine-year-old girl being killed because she was deemed not valuable to society. Now, the strength of the Christian worldview is that we can look at that and call it wrong. We can look at that and call it evil. But when, as soon as you say that, as a humanist or as an atheist, you're appealing to an objective truth above humanity, above those chemical reactions we were talking about, that, that requires an objective truth maker. God. It just doesn't, you can call it, you can call it not your preference. You can say my chemical reactions don't like that. But to call it wrong, to say that there is good and there is evil, and that's in the evil category. You're appealing to an objective truth about the universe. And that necessitates God. Now, all of us can look at that situation and say that is wrong, that is evil. But the hope of our Christian faith is that we serve a God of justice. And this is what Psalm 63 lands on at the end, that we serve a God of justice, a God who will make those wrongs right, who will shut the mouths of liars, a God who knows the evil and the hurt in this world and will do something about it. Thanks be to our God for that. So here we are. We've arrived at the end of our poem. We've arrived at the end of our treasure map, so to speak, and the clues have been made clear. God is the treasure that your heart was made to seek. Not only seek, but find, and not only find, but be satisfied fully. So I'd like to ask you one question. Are you willing to seek him? Are you willing to earnestly seek him? If you wouldn't mind uh, bowing your heads and closing your eyes uh, today, when with every head closed, uh, every, <laughs> every, not head closed and I bow, every head bowed and I closed this morning, I just, 
don't want today to go by without me having the chance to pray for some people who would really need prayer this morning. So if today you feel like you have been spending your life seeking the wrong things, that you have been chasing that which cannot satisfy you, that you have longings in your heart to chase after things, but you've been chasing after things that are not ultimately satisfying you, things that are not ultimately God. Would you mind just looking up at me if that's you today? Thank you. Thank you. I see you. I'd like to pray for you. And I'd like to leave you with the promise that when we seek God, God meets us. He promises those who seek will find. So would you join me in prayer this morning? And allow me the privilege of praying for you. God, you are the one we seek. You are the one who seeks us. Lord, I pray for those here who have sought that which is not you. Lord, that we would turn away from that and come running to you. Lord, give us the strength. Fill us with your spirit as we go on that journey as we seek for the treasure that is your abundant life that you so freely give to us. Lord, we thank you for that gift. We thank you for your direction. We thank you that when we seek you, you meet us every step of the way. Lord, we love you and we praise you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and receive this blessing this morning? Now let the deepest longings of your soul be satisfied by the only one who can truly do so. Go forth and seek him in all that you do. Amen.